let me ask you the question first. How do you like the conference so far? You've only been here two days. Wait. It gets better as we go along if your health holds up. Uh, announcements. We were supposed to have a pirate workshop in addition to our regular pirate workshop tonight on book proposals. Uh, it was to be run by Michael Larson, an agent from San Francisco. Unfortunately, Michael is not well and uh, is not here, and um, consequently, he will not be able to conduct the, the workshop. However, tonight in the Montecito room, uh, Barbara Alpert of Bantam Books will conduct a workshop on uh, what editors of Bantam and other paperback publishers and hardback publishers are looking for. Uh, you're welcome to come to the Montecito Room, as you are welcome to Shelley, Shelley Lowenkopf's uh, meeting, regular meeting downstairs in the Santa Barbara Room. Tomorrow night, uh, Natasha Kern, who is one of the agents in residence here, who will be on the Agents and Editors panel tomorrow afternoon, has she has agreed to do an a workshop at 10 o'clock tomorrow night in the Montecito room on book proposals. She has uh, talked on this and run workshops on book proposals in many areas in the Northwest, and she has volunteered graciously to uh, fill in for Michael Lawson. So tonight it will be Barbara Alpert in the Montecito room and Shelley Lowenkopf downstairs with his regular group of groupies. And uh, tomorrow night, it will be Natasha Kern in the Montecito Room, and the groupies will again follow Shelley Lowenkopf. And now, with um, great pride and uh, some reservations, I, I am uh, proud and happy to introduce our fearless leader, Barnaby Conrad. Thank you. I'm going to introduce the introducer. That's what I've been reduced to. Um, no, actually, I was, I was going to tell you, some, some people asked if I'd repeat the, the letter I did last year uh, about how you get someone to write a blurb for your book, the book that you're going to finish and uh, hopefully get published very soon. And how do you get those wonderful blurbs? Well, I, I want to tell you, several years ago, uh, I wrote a book with Nils Mortensen, one of our workshop leaders, and uh, we wanted to get a great blurb from William F. Buckley. Well, I went to Yale. Everybody can't get into the college of their first choice, but I went to Yale, and uh, William F. Buckley went to Yale. We went five years apart, and I never met Mr. Buckley, but I just wrote him this letter one day and, uh, and hoped you'll see the result. And this is the kind of chutzpah you have to have when you're promoting your book. Dear Bill, <laughs> I'm enclosing a novel, Endangered, that a friend of mine, Nils Mortensen, and I have just finished, in which Putnam plans to publish next spring. If, in spite of your horrendous schedule, you could find time to read it, and to perhaps say something not totally unkind about it, that would be enormously pleasing. Tolstoy it is not, but a light summer read in a hammock it may quite possibly be. If you find yourself too busy, you're too busy, and don't give it another thought. Do not for a moment feel guilty about the matter, or dwell, <laughs> or dwell on the many favors I've done you over the years. Uh, such as the blurb that I gave you for your recent little Sea Scout manual, or going back a bit, the money that I lent you as a rather threadbare, though promising, undergraduate, or the fact that I was the first to spot the worth, between the lines, of course, of God and Man at Yale, and that I saw it through to publication at Vantage Press, or that I introduced you to both G.K. Chesterton and the girl who would subsequently become your wife, and or that I got you in good with Claire Booth Luce, 
personally gave your dog Rowley his first gentle worming, <laughs> agonized over your brother Fergus's, uh, uh, who's a bullfight fan, initial Veronica's at Yale, uh, put up with his uh, pet boa constrictor and political views, equally convoluted, that I honed your spindly vocabulary, formed your tiny left hand around its first tenth on the harpsichord, physically protected you in the studio from the smoldering violence of Muhammad Ali, encouraged your first fumbling attempts at navigation. Buckley, goddammit, leave the moon out of it altogether, I said to you. Managed to keep you a member of the Bohemian Club when the elders wanted you sent down for buggery, and of course, permitted you to speak at our writers' conference as theretofore conclave of first-class authors. No, do not give any of the above a moment's thought. If you are too busy, I understand, and that is that. And know that if you decide you cannot do this, that I shall never think twice about it, and that I shall always remain your fervent, your true, and your loyal acquaintance. Sincerely, Buckley sent back a telegram saying, Dear Barnaby, your book is great, it's exciting, it's dramatic, it's hilarious, it's gripping, it's moving, and you may quote me. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> we cut out the hilarious, though, because it was supposed to be a suspense story. <laughs> now I'd like to introduce you to the introducer. Chuck Champlin said the greatest Thing about our conference last year. He wrote me a note and just said that the Writers' Conference has become the great punctuation of my life. Isn't that neat? Um, anyway, he's become a treasured member of the faculty for several years, and we just couldn't do without him. And I'm going to press him into service to, press our, to in introduce our wonderful guest tonight. Thank you. As a journalist, particularly working around Hollywood, you become painfully aware that there is often a gap, sometimes resembling the Grand Canyon, between the public perception and the private reality of some of the lives that we are writing about. And I'm not sure that that gap between the perception and the reality has ever been more dramatically and movingly described than in Christina Crawford's book, Mommy Dearest, uh, a chronicle of how tough it can be to grow up uh, in the shadow of a, of a very strong public personality. Uh, Christina Crawford has put a life of her own together. She attended Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, has a degree from UCLA, has now written a third book, uh, there's another one in there, which I've not read, called Black Widow. The new one called, aptly enough, Survivor, uh, about putting her own life together triumphantly. And it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Christina Crawford. This is great fun for me. Um, I travel all over the country now and have been doing so for the last few years. Uh, talking to all kinds of groups of people uh, on a variety of different subjects, but I very rarely get the opportunity uh, to speak about how it all got to be that way, which is a subject dear to all of our hearts, and that is the writing itself. So uh, what I'd like to do uh, this evening is to share with you uh, what has happened to me as a writer as well as uh, the books that I have written, and then finally, uh, some of the ideas that I have come to write about. And then I would like to open it up uh, for questions and answers so that we can be sure that what you are specifically interested in uh, will get um, taken care of and addressed here tonight. I, I will say that as you're thinking of your, of your questions, um, I have never uh, in all the years, and I've been a public person literally since the time I was very small, 
Uh, I have never monitored anything. I have never censored anything. So I welcome any questions that you have, whether it's about the writing or my life or anything else that you feel like asking me. And um, that way we know that we'll have a, a wonderful free exchange of, of ideas. So um, I'd like to start with uh, who I am as a writer. And for me, writing was uh, quite natural because as a child, I did not have uh, a lot of ways to express myself freely. Um, I was an abused child, and I grew up in a very chaotic household uh, with a mother that was an alcoholic and very unpredictable, so that I needed some place um, to find uh, a safe place to express myself. So for me, writing became a best friend. Writing became the place that I went and gave the best, the most intimate, um, the most creative, and the most honest part of myself. Unfortunately, I don't have any of those early journals uh, because they were destroyed. But um, when uh, my mother found them, <laughs> that was a rather traumatic experience. And I probably shouldn't have been so naive as to leave them where somebody could find them. But I started out as a writer keeping a journal. After that, um, uh, didn't seem to work to my great advantage. I started out doing poetry. And I uh, found that in poetry, um, I could leave the material around anywhere because nobody ever understood what it was or what my allegories were or what it was referring to as long as I didn't title it. Um, so uh, I uh, then, for a number of years, uh, wrote poetry. And uh, fortunately, that poetry I have. It's never been published, and um, that's probably just as well also. But uh, it served as a means of expression uh, for me through all of those years where I really didn't have anybody to talk to. And so in my writing, I had, uh, I developed a kind of um, a bravery and um, uh, an empathy and a relationship with my myself uh, because I felt that it, it took the place of a best friend. And I confided in my writing as uh, other people, as other children did with their best friends. I told my writing everything about me. And I shared with the paper um, those kinds of moments that I was unable to share with anybody else. And so I, I have been one of those very fortunate people as a writer that I have never known what it is like not to be able to write, even when those uh, assignments came that perhaps were not of my specific choosing or it was really for money that I was doing it and not because it was some, a, a subject that I was choosing. That the paper and pencil and uh, the ability to sit down and begin to write has always been something that I found uh, a source of joy and a source of nurturing, uh, the likes of which uh, I, have, I have never found a replacement for. So um, long before I knew that I was going to become a professional writer, um, basically from the age of about 10 years old on, uh, I have been a writer, and uh, most of the time I wrote certainly every day and, and uh, uh, most of the time every week uh, of my life. And um, it, it became that place that I would look forward to going to so that when I began to write my books, um, I, uh, I wrote very quickly. And um, uh, that was also kind of a source of amazement uh, to my editors and uh, the, the people that I worked with because I didn't know that there were certain constraints that you were only supposed to be able to write X number of pages a day. Nobody fortunately ever told me that. And so I had, uh, I had no preconceived notion. Um, when I wrote uh, the first book, uh, Mommy Dearest, I had uh, previously uh, gone back to school uh, because I had been an actress for 14 years. 
And uh, that's all that I'd ever wanted to do, and it's all that I was ever trained to do, and it's all that I ever had any desire to do. But the time, time came when I realized in my early 30s that um, I had to do something different uh, and hopefully better with my life um, because I loved the work of acting and I loved the people that I worked with, but I didn't like the process very much, and I didn't feel like we had much autonomy or self-respect or respect from uh, a lot of other people and I, as a woman, I, I felt that uh, there was another way to go about uh, living. So I went back to university, which was the place that I had always excelled as a young person. And the reason for that was that I found out that unlike my chaotic life at home, there was in school um, a kind of a one-to-one -one relationship between the effort that you expended and the results that you got. And I thought that was sort of terrific. So when I started thinking about changing my personal life um, uh, mid-career, uh, I, I decided that the university was the place that I was going to begin. So I went to UCLA and finished um, three years of undergraduate work in about a year and a half. I was uh, a, a little bit driven. Um, not the least of which was I realized I was going to have to earn a living pretty soon and uh, uh, can't, couldn't rely on my acting work. So uh, then I realized when I was about to graduate from UCLA that I was in my early 30s and that if I wanted to get a job in industry or business uh, at that age, uh, I was going to have to get a little bit more uh, to compete with. So I uh, went across uh, town to USC, which means that in football season I have to be absolutely quiet. Um, and I got a master's degree in communication. And so when I went to work in corporate communications, what I had to do was write every day. I was one of the very few people that were considered a junior executive that had a typewriter in my office and one that I was expected to use on a regular basis. And so I got extraordinarily good training as a writer during those two years of doing corporate communications. Um, because drilling reports and uh, speeches for uh, executives on the oil problem was not exactly the most exciting work in the world, but the training and um, the discipline of making the work something that I could be proud of turning out on a regular basis was great for me. And I learned from some very good technical writers um, how to do a better job uh, at my craft, which at, until that point had been very experiential and had been very um, uh, emotionally, if not psychologically, oriented. So for two years, I had the rather wonderful experience of writing professionally and technically and to a deadline and to other people's specifications. So uh, when I sat down to write the first book, uh, Mommy Dearest, I had behind me, um, I was at that point, I think, uh, 36 or 37 years old. I had behind me more than 20 years of writing for my own pleasure and benefit and a number of years uh, of working in uh, the corporate world, uh, writing uh, technical material with discipline and uh, to other people's specification. So when I sat down to write uh, my first book, I, I honestly did not feel awed by the process. I took it in very small increments, and I did an outline, um, but it was a chapter outline. And then what I started to do was I just, uh, when I would get up in the morning, I would uh, just look at the, the, the t title headings for the different chapters, and I would simply begin to write on that subject um, and that period of time. And I didn't worry about how it was eventually all going to fit together, because quite frankly, I didn't know, except that I wrote the opening sequence of Mommy Dearest first, which was actually the end 
of the story and um, because it had just happened and I wanted to make sure that I was able to capture the full impact of the end of the story when it was still uh, extremely uh, fresh and, and pain painfully clear in my mind. So um, the structure of the first book was that it began at the end and then it went back to the beginning and, and came back in time all the way through. Many people, after that book was uh, written and published, said, how could she possibly have remembered um, so many details that had happened such a long time ago? Um, if you remember, I mentioned earlier that I had been writing since I was a little girl, and so I had recreated a lot of uh, that material uh, at the time that it was actually occurring. And then I had photographs, I had an enormous um, uh, picture book of, of family pictures, most of which were taken for movie magazines and for publicity purposes, but they, they um, acted as mnemonic devices so that I could see the, the um, decor in the various rooms of the houses. I could see what I was wearing. I could see um, the other people uh, that were involved. And then I had some reference books so that I could put things in uh, time and place. And uh, I had a reference book on uh, the films uh, that my mother had done with the dates and the different people that were involved. So between those two things, the, um, uh, the, the book on the film and the scrapbook, um, I recreated in pretty good detail um, uh, the details of my growing up uh, years. But of course what I was writing about was what had never been written about, not only by uh, anybody in Hollywood, uh, although it was very well known. Uh, in all the years that I was growing up, it was not a secret what was going on in our house. Many, many people knew, but they were afraid to say anything, and with good reason, because if they tried to speak up on the b behalf of the children, uh, and they worked uh, in our house or um, professionally associated uh, with my mother, they were fired. And if they didn't work uh, in some capacity with her and they were friends, they were dismissed from the social circle. So uh, there were some reasons uh, that eventually people uh, stopped saying anything, but it was not a secret. And um, what I discovered was when I went out um, across the country after the book was published and I started talking to people, there was never a time when I was in a room this size that we did not have fellow, fellow survivors. And as I told my story and told how it felt not only to be a child uh, growing up in that situation, but also how it felt during the years that I was trying to learn how to be a human being as an adult, um, I would see the expressions on people's faces change. And at the end, uh, people would come up to me and say, this was my story too. At the same time, I was getting literally thousands of letters from people all over the United States and eventually all over the world saying, I never knew that uh, it happened to anyone else. I always felt that I was so terribly alone and I was always so afraid to say anything for fear that no one would understand me. And I, of course, would write back and say, yes, I know. Um, so what happened with the, uh, the publication of the first book um, only uh, 10 years ago, it was uh, 1978, but it was in the uh, uh, fall of 1978, um, is that for the very first time in the United States of America, we began to talk about a situation that had been experienced in literally mil millions and millions of homes, but had never been seen as a fit subject for public conversation. And uh, even though the first federal uh, law had been passed in 1974 to protect children, it was seen as an issue of the ghetto, of the undereducated, of the lower class, and of poverty. And what um, telling my story did was it blew apart those kind of convenient myths and showed us all that uh, there were no boundaries and that that kind of human tragedy could occur any time, any place, anywhere. 
As a result of my telling my story, uh, needless to say, I became extremely controversial um, as a human being. And um, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, there were th active threats on my life. And um, I had to have uh, security wherever I went. And um, um, there were people that uh, were in the public eye that had television shows that were unmitigatingly cruel uh, to me and to uh, my work and uh, therefore to the children of the United States uh, for a very long time. And um, I began to realize that uh, what I had assumed, which was that by telling the truth, um, that I would be recognized as the person that had been the victim, uh, was simply not going to happen, and certainly not right away. But uh, rather, what a lot of people were talking about was, how could I have done this to somebody else? And Quite frankly, I was totally shocked. I couldn't believe that this was the attitude um, of some of the press and some of the public uh, when I used to say, aren't we asking the wrong questions? Um, I had some very serious choices uh, as a professional and as a human being to make during those years, um, not the least of which was that the my my instinct and my desire was like E.T. go home. <laughs> I did not want to be the only pioneering voice out there. I had not expected uh, that this would be the kind of reaction. And I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to my safe place and uh, forget about the whole thing and let anybody say whatever they darn well felt like. And um, I almost did that. Uh, there was a night in Washington, D.C. that um, I took a long walk uh, in the cold and I wanted to go home. I didn't want to suffer anymore and I didn't want uh, to have to face um, the, the barrage of unkind questions that I was having to face every day of my life when I knew that not I had been the one to do anything wrong. And I found myself in front of a very small, um, tiny, as a matter of fact, church. And of course it was closed and, and the doors were closed and then it had a, I'll never forget it, I don't know if I could find it again, but I'll never forget the picture of it. It had a little picket fence around it and I thought how odd to find this kind of a place in the middle of Washington DC with the glass buildings and the high rises and the, um, the you know, hustle and bustle and the sophistication and I stood there in front of that church for a long time with the uh, wind blowing uh, my hair and it was very cold but I could feel that I was perspiring and so the wind felt even colder on my face and I kept thinking what am I going to do how am I going to do this I'm too I'm only one person and I'm too little and I want to go home and then suddenly heard my voice inside of me like the child and I thought, no, I can't go home. There are little children, really little children out there, just like I feel right now, and they need my voice. So I continued the tour, and um, the rest uh, was history, um, because I somehow found the, the strength and the courage to stay out there, we continued to talk about the subject that was extremely painful for all of us because we didn't have a language in which to talk about it. We didn't have a context in which to feel the emotions. We didn't have permission as a society to begin to unravel uh, the chaos uh, that had taken place in secret. I was just in, in New York uh, last week, uh, because I do travel a lot, and in the New York Times, uh, in the front page of uh, their sort of metro section, um, there was a whole article on recovery books. 
and um, uh, most of the major publishers now have sections uh, that they are doing recovery books, not just how-to books, which was a popular um, uh, theme uh, when Mommy Dearest was, was published 10 years ago, but recovery books. And I thought, you know, isn't that interesting that today um, self-help and recovery are so much a part of our language and, and, and our context is of, of growing and maturing and uh, seeing one another and being able to talk to one another in a language that has been developed over the last 10 years. Um, certainly the language that uh, is Mommy Dearest has, has been infiltrated into our American mythology and our American slang and um, the two words have taken on a connotation uh, that they never had before and uh, it's been a fascinating process for, for me to watch as I see my own country and my own society grow and develop uh, from where it was just 10 years ago. And those of you who have been involved in any kind of social change, whether it has been your own personal change or, or you, you write about social change or you're active in any kind of social change, you know how slow attitudes are to change. Sometimes they take as much as a whole generation. What we have seen in this country is, although the statistics and the numbers, which we don't need to get into uh, tonight to any great extent, the numbers are almost beyond belief. Uh, we're talking millions and millions of people now, if affected every single year. Um, and millions and millions of children affected. But um, the, the language and the context, the um, mythology and the attitudes, the, um, the assumptions and the expectations that we have as a society have changed substantially in the last 10 years. And it has been very exciting for, for me to see uh, that growth and that change. There are people that now um, have come forward in all areas of, of recovery, whether it is um, uh, psychological, whether it is eating disorders, whether it is alcoholism, drug um, um, abuse, substance abuse. And we now have developed, um, as I say, a language, a context, and a cultural expectation that that is not only permissible, in other words, as a society, we have given ourselves permission to address these subjects, but it has become desirable and um, a matter of pride and choice uh, to be involved in change, whether it's personal or, or uh, uh, social. My second book was a novel uh, called Black Widow, and um, I, I wrote it because I, I quite a, under, understandably, first of all, I had the opportunity the publisher gave me uh, to be able to write it. And secondly, I wanted to do something completely different uh, than my first book. And um, uh, it was interesting because in context, it um, uh, it got better reviews than Mommy Dearest did. <laughs> and, and I thought, that how ironic, because a lot of the reviews said that um, uh, that I wrote fiction like nonfiction, but when I had written nonfiction, they said that it was fiction. So I just guess you can't please everyone all the time, and it just shows you um, what a sense of humor uh, is required uh, to read uh, some of the feedback uh, that comes to you. On that, I, I, I wrote that book, I rewrote it, uh, four times with three separate editors. It turned into a kind of a nightmare. It had uh, three titles, um, uh, one for each editor. Um, it, uh, uh, it was rewritten four times uh, for three editors. Once I rewrote it myself, I knew that it had to be rewritten, but the other three times were with the three editors. And um, uh, the fourth time, I think that it was, I, I wrote an entirely new beginning and a new ending. And at that point, I thought, well, if there's a fifth rewrite, I don't know what to do. I mean, it, it, I can write another book maybe, but I don't know that I can rewrite this again. 
Um, anyway, I sent that manuscript uh, to the uh, editor, and I knew that it had been accepted for publication about um, a month uh, before I suffered a massive stroke from which I was not expected to live. And the irony of that was, that was in, 19, in August of 1981, and the irony of that was that my life was absolutely called to a, a rather a shocking halt at the same time that my career had virtually skyrocketed. Um, my first book uh, was on the bestseller list for uh, 42 weeks in hardcover. Um, and uh, the paperback had been uh, bought and uh, had been published, and it was a bestseller. Uh, the film uh, had been bought, and I had written two screenplays. Unfortunately, neither one of them were used uh, for the film, which I was very sad about, and it would have made a much better film, but that's another story. Um, and uh, um, I had started my own uh, company, and um, uh, I had written my second book. And so I thought that uh, at long last, um, uh, I was now in my early 40s, I thought at long last I have finally gotten my life together. I know what I want to do. I'm able to do it. Um, I was uh, thrilled that I had been um, allowed uh, these opportunities, and I was really very grateful. But the stress and the strain evidently was a great deal uh, harder on me than I had ever imagined. And uh, in August of 1981, I suffered a massive stroke, and uh, I was left uh, without the ability to speak to think, to read, to walk, um, or to function, and uh, I was basically left for dead. Um, I was transferred to another hospital, and um, they uh, attempted to do uh, a brain operation, but they, they were not able to, to finish it, and uh, they simply said that um, they had no other options medically, and that perhaps it would be better uh, not to hope that I would live, because the best they could hope for me if I did uh, survive uh, the next 24 hours was that I would be a complete and total vegetable. Fortunately, ladies and gentlemen, they didn't tell me that. <laughs> so, um, I did survive, um, and I had um, what I didn't know then, but have subsequently found out, was um, almost a classic uh, near-death experience. When I was in the second hospital and after they had um, uh, done the operation, which they couldn't finish, I had a, um, a rather magnificent uh, sensation um, of uh, going to the most beautiful place that I had ever seen uh, in my life with colors and um, the feeling of acceptance and belonging that uh, appeared to envelop you. It wasn't so much uh, the experience as, as we have when we have um, um, a one-to-one -one experience of seeing love coming from somebody's eyes or feeling held and protected or having some uh, wonderful kindness done for you uh, that was unexpected and unasked for. It was a feeling of being totally enveloped in this sense of belonging, caring, um, and, and uh, love. And um, it, was a, it was a magnificent experience um, of, of, of total acceptance and no, no sense of, of, of a them and an us or a, as anything outside myself. And um, um, beautiful, beautiful colors and, and a sense of unity and peace that you hear about, but I actually uh, felt it. And uh, then, all of a sudden, I, I felt as though I, I just suddenly started to fall. Um, it was as though I had been uh, h held, and then 
I fell and um, uh, at a tremendous speed, um, something like you would see in one of those futuristic uh, 2001 type of uh, space travel uh, movies. And um, the next thing I knew, um, I opened my eyes and I saw, it was very, very cold, and I saw eyes looking back at me uh, through whiteness and I had no idea where I was, absolutely no idea where I was. And people started talking to me and asking me all kinds of questions. And uh, I tried to answer, and of course I realized I, I, I couldn't really say anything. Um, and for quite a long time, many days, uh, I was in, in intensive care, which, um, uh, you know, it's quite dark, and, and there are people all the, all the time, but it's quite dark. And, uh, but I had no idea where I was, uh, because I honestly thought that I had already gone to someplace else. And so to find myself alive, I was totally disoriented. And then I realized that I was in the hospital and that I was alive under uh, dreadful circumstances. And I had absolutely no idea how I was going to continue to be. Um, uh, not that that was up to me any longer, but um, I had no idea how I was going to be. And um, that being part um, is the basis of uh, the third book, uh, which is called Survivor. And uh, I realized that if I were going to be in the world now what it, with what I had seen and known and experienced, that I was going to have to be in the world in a very, very different way than I had ever known. And I didn't know how you went about finding out how to be in the world in a way that you had never experienced and that you'd never heard anybody talk about. And you'd, I couldn't read, now you know. Uh, so it wasn't like I could march myself down to my local bookstore and get three books on this subject of how to be in the world after a near-death experience, because even if there had been such books, I couldn't have read them anyway. And so it was a very interesting, non-linear um, journey that uh, I embarked on for the next three or four years. First to try and get some physical strength back, which fortunately did return within a relatively short period of time. And um, I, um, I walked in the wilderness, literally, for almost three years. I mean, I came home at night. Uh, I wasn't, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn or anything, but um, uh, I, I walked in the wilderness for three years. And uh, in that process, uh, I was some uh, wonderful uh, dogs that I had. And in that process, I learned to talk because the dogs didn't know whether I was speaking in, in complete sentences, and yet they seemed to have some understanding of what I was saying. And um, I, I learned to get over my fear, um, all my fears. I realized that what I was most afraid of most of my life was being alive, of, of living. And how ironic that I uh, was so stubborn and set in my ways, even though I thought that I was doing a pretty good job of, of healing and mending and growing, that I was so stubborn that it took something like a massive stroke to wake me up and recognize that it wasn't just a matter of uh, change. I had to find a new way to be as a human being. Um, and I had only my intuition uh, to lead me. And so I had to pay very close attention to the smallest, uh, most minute sign of where I should be going because there was nobody to lead me and there was nobody that I knew to follow. And at one point, um, I, I thought that uh, it was that my sense of intuition and what I started to call, you know, that inner voice, I, I was beginning to think there were great periods of time when I began to think that my inner voice had laryngitis because I couldn't hear what it was supposed to be saying to me. And so we had all those kinds of, of, of struggles. And little by little, day by day, the progress was very, very minute. 
um, I found myself constructing um, a completely different way of, of being in the world uh, where I could deal with uh, my own anger and the stress of the world without getting angry or feeling stressed. And um, it, it has been a most miraculous and um, inspiring process for me uh, because I, I really did, I thought that this was a challenge that I certainly uh, was not going to be up to. And uh, what I learned is that the, um, the, the magnificence of the human mind and the human spirit and what it can do if we give it a chance um, uh, to grow and, 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 and to be free. So today, um, I am, you know, a very um, healthy, active person. I travel all over the, the United States um, talking to people about not only personal recovery, but um, social change. And um, it, uh, it has been probably out of tragedy, which I certainly have had my share of. Um, my life today, I just celebrated my 50th birthday about a week ago. My life today is um, literally the best that it has ever, ever been. And I feel a sense of um, joy and gratitude for what I have learned and for what I have been able to, to share with people um, so that my, my real hope is that, for instance, with, with Mommy Dearest, um, my, my writing was um, uh, a story that I had to tell in order to tell the truth about my life professional um, and to prove that to myself um, that I was quote-unquote a real writer uh, because a lot of people would sort of ask me well who was your ghost on Mommy Dearest and I said well not the way you think of it there wasn't any ghost um, and the third book uh, Survivor was written after my stroke um, and the fact that I could write, that I could hold um, the pencil or the pen to do it, um, that the inspirational process uh, came back, the creative process came back. That was the last of the facilities to return. And I waited for that for about four years, having to all the time accept that maybe it wasn't ever going to come back. And maybe what I had spent my whole life doing, which was being a communicator and a writer, would never return to me. So I had to accept that every day and be grateful for what did return to me. Um, but Survivor is a bridge that I needed to build first of all, for me to walk across to the rest of my life, and hopefully uh, for other people uh, to walk across. So I think of it in terms of being a bridge, but also in terms of being a map. I didn't have a map to guide me when I needed one uh, the most. So um, I realized that if I could make a map, then people could choose whatever road they wanted to take um, on that map. But they didn't have to wander around in the wilderness um, and uh, be a map maker, uh, because not everybody is able uh, to do that. Um, so. Uh, today, um, I have uh, gone on and I'm, I'm working on a, a documentary film on um, uh, survivors of trauma uh, for my next project. And uh, the handout uh, that you found on your chairs or somebody handed you, um, I would be very grateful if you would um, uh, return at the end. Um, it's for a project that I'm, that I'm working on. And if you'd just be kind enough to put in the um, upper right-hand corner, the city that you currently live in, not, not Santa Barbara, but where you live uh, today, that would, that would be very helpful. Um, so I, I would like to leave the prepared remarks as prepared as, as they were um, with uh, the last lines of, of the, the third book, Survivor, um, which say, and it is my wish for you, and then we'll do questions and answers. Um, 
uh, be happy, live well, honor the joy you already know. Thank you. And now I'd be happy to answer whatever questions you have. Um, I know the first one is always the hardest one to get, but I know that there have to be some terrific questions out there. So why doesn't somebody be brave? Sure. And I'll repeat the question so you can hear it. Okay. What was my support group in the rehab program? Uh, process after my stroke. Well, I, I had um, uh, some family, yes, uh, for which I am very grateful. It would have been very, very difficult to have done this all by myself. Although in the, in the long run, um, you, you, one must do it oneself. And so what I did was, after the, um, uh, the therapists who came to the house um, left. I had been in a rehab hospital uh, after the regular hospital and then I had people that uh, came to the house to help me, speech therapists, uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists. And uh, then I started to think of my life um, uh, like camp. And um, I uh, had certain activities and schedules that um, I had to perform every single day. Fortunately, I had also been an actress for 14 years. And I remember back in acting school, we had to um, do a lot of work um, to get rid of our regional ac accents and uh, um, to try and learn to speak speak Shakespearean English, which I never mastered, but I remembered the process of phonetics, and um, uh, so once the speech therapist left, I tried to think of it in terms of um, my acting school, and it was a great help, because rehab from a stroke is very slow and tedious. I tell you truthfully, it took me weeks to be able to just do that. At first, I had to take this thumb and actually push it toward the finger because I couldn't do it. And so to do this or that, um, which we all take for granted, was literally sweat pouring down your face to try and, and do it. So it, it's a very discouraging process that most people give up way, way too soon on. But part of the problem is that it is so tedious and it is very, um, it's very humiliating because uh, the day before you were an active person, you probably are a, a wage earner, you were an adult member of a family, you had uh, whatever pride and vanity we all have. And um, uh, you wake up one day and you are relegated to learning the tasks that you learned as a two-year-old, how to tie your shoes, button your buttons, and feed yourself, and you're not doing it very well. And um, it's, um, it's very hard. Uh, you get stripped of your vanities and your pride, and it's, it's, it's hard to deal with, very hard to deal with. And it shuts a lot of people off from activities and friends. Also, the difference between a stroke and, and some other um, illnesses is that we tend to think that, uh, for instance, with a heart attack, um, certainly the person is ill, and certainly they have gone through a trauma. But when they recover, they may have to change their diet and their exercise program, but they're basically the same general person. When you have a and, and relatively quickly, within a few months, when you have a stroke, you are not the same person. You do not return to normal activities or capabilities. And um, it takes a very, very long time. So what happens is, the, as the, as the uh, in my case, I should just speak for myself, as the years wore on, people expect me to be able to just, um, you know, drive my car or, and, you know, dial the telephone. The telephone nearly drove me 
banana crackers because I had such severe aphasia that I'd look the telephone number, I'd look at the, at the push buttons. I'd get two-thirds of the way through and I'd do something wrong and I'd have to hang up. One time I got so mad I just threw the phone across the room and didn't answer the phone or talk on the phone for about a week. Of course, that was very smart and it really did a lot for me. But um, uh, that was what I did, and uh, so there I was, and I just had to start all over again. Okay, the number and the push buttons, and, and I mean, sometimes it took me five minutes to uh, to dial one number, which is a very frustrating process, and you lose the patience not only of yourself, but of most of your friends in the process. <laughs> I mean, I was constantly saying very strange things. Um, you'd try to say something about uh, something that just happened at the supermarket, and you'd come out talking about Christmas or something, you know, and people look at you like you're crazy. But um, anyway, you learn a lot about uh, what your tolerances and vanities are. Yeah, there was a... It's you, and it, we're done. But let's just take one more question. Oh, sorry. Um, mommy dearest has become a, a generic term. You say that the mommy dearest book, and uh, uh, I was reading it the other day. This is so wonderfully well written, and uh, doesn't it hurt you when people say, "Was it ghost written?" <laughs> it did in the beginning, yes. And, and now has this become far more? You say the critics. Yes, in the 10 years, I mean, I'm glad that I've, I've lived long enough to see the change, but um, in the 10 years, I think that I'm, I'm consistently told that um, the publication of that book was a line of demarcation in our society, and that a lot of positive change that has happened subsequent to that um, was because that book acted as a catalyst. Came out of the closet. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, we're dealing with subject matters and, and recovery processes now that I don't think could have been possible maybe without it. Yeah, yes. Well, I actually had done an article in 1960 for Red Book Magazine on uh, my uh, teenage years, and uh, it had created so much controversy um, that I thought that, you know, the, the truth was not um, uh, my best friend. Um, and uh, uh, then after uh, the death of my mother, I realized that I had to I had to tell the truth about my life and that's what Mommy Dearest was. It was an autobiographical account of my life and um, I actually never thought that the, the book would be published because I didn't have a publisher, I didn't have an agent and I really thought that it was going to be another one of my journals um, and that I had kept uh, for many many years. And I, I gave a few pages of it to uh, a friend of mine in New York, and um, he and his wife asked if they could give it to their agent, who was Lynn Nesbitt at uh, ICM. And she called me and said, is there any more of this? And I said, well, when you get back from vacation, yeah, I can, uh, I can have. Well, when she came back two months later, um, she had a finished manuscript. Yeah. Yes. Well, first of all, it's a good question about how could I have been open about what went on. First of all, I was trying to get help. Um, I was get, trying to get somebody to help and understand me, uh, which is different than uh, what happened subsequent when I found out that, that 
I wasn't going to get any help, any, any meaningful help, um, then I became very closed and, and distrusting as a human being. But um, that only started standing me in very poor stead as I became an adolescent and a young adult because I didn't know anything about friendship, I didn't know anything about trust, I didn't know anything about working in teams except in sports. Um, and I, I, I realized I didn't know a whole lot about being um, a person. And it was, um, I didn't know how to learn about life. I didn't know how to ask questions. I, um, I had a lot of skills that I was missing. And uh, so I was uh, very often, I think, misinterpreted um, as being um, uh, somewhat aloof. Uh, because um, I, I didn't share myself uh, very much. But in terms of being a public person, I have never censored anything that I have permitted to be asked. So there were kind of two different processes. Yes? I, I will try. Um, uh, when, first of all, Mommy Dearest isn't a novel. Um, Mommy Dearest is a nonfiction autobiography. Um, and uh, secondly, the question was that uh, when Mommy Dearest was first published, uh, one of the two adopted sisters was um, um, very vocal about her denial. Uh, well, you've used the operative word. Um, this is very typical in families of abuse that um, if one person uh, becomes healthy enough to tell the truth, that um, the other family members will deny that uh, it either happened or that they had any participation or that it happened to them. In other words, deny that they saw anything that they heard anything, it's like the three monkeys, you know, um, or that anything happened to them. And I never speak for any of my other family members, but it's very typical of um, households where um, uh, violence takes place. Yes? What role has my sense of humor played in my writing and my survival? <laughs> well, a lot. Um, I, I, I'll tell you a little story. Um, a friend of mine just recently moved to Denver uh, to be a social worker, and uh, she sent me a note recently. And out of this note fell one of those little kitchen magnets that you put on your refrigerator to hold your child's, you know, painting or whatever. And the magnet said, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Well, I have a lot of experience, <laughs> and I have had to have a lot of humor about it. So um, it has been crucial in, in all of my growth and change. Yes? At what age did I feel that I had been a victim of abuse? Actually, um, I, I didn't understand it quite uh, as well until I went to school. And when I went to public school um, in first grade, um, and I was invited to the homes of my uh, friends and, and uh, schoolmates, um, many of whom were not members of the, of the Hollywood community, they were just members of the regular community, I realized that they had a completely different orientation toward their parents and that they were able to ask questions and that they, the, the fear level was completely different. And it was at that time seeing the interaction on a much uh, more normal and healthy basis that I understood the difference between my house and theirs, but there was no language for it. Uh, we had no words for it, and uh, um, it was not something that anybody else talked about. It was just my perception, my uh, observation. There were some questions here. Okay. 
Do I know my real parents? Uh, no, I have seen the paperwork, but um, I have never pursued that. Of course, to, uh, in those days, it would have been very difficult. But um, uh, today, there are some wonderful agencies like Tri Adoption and a couple of those that um, allow both the birth parents to find their child and the child to find their birth parents. But I never did. Yes. Uh, briefly, yes. Um, uh, this is a, a project that I'm doing with a PhD psychologist, and um, uh, hopefully we are going to, I've been taking this uh, to uh, groups all over the country and asking people all over the country to fill it out, and uh, we'll have it um, uh, computer analyzed, and uh, then we're going to do some work with it. So I appreciate anybody that participates very much. Yeah, there was a question back here.